15 to 20. And I've learned from some of you guys not to have the passage ready so that way I can flip to it to give you time to flip to it. All right, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Before we uh, pray and get started, I'll just mention quickly, you guys sound great. I really wish when I was at your age I could sing as well as uh, you do, but I'm also thankful just because, not just of the, uh, the sound of your voices, but just the blessing you guys have in knowing other people and other young Christians who uh, love to sing the truth. It's such an awesome part of what we get to do. So I'm just going to pray, and then we'll, we'll get into the text. Thank you again, Lord, for this time. Please um, provide for us what we need to know and love your word. We know that these truths here are eternal and they are deep. Um, we want to know it through writing notes. We want to know through paying attention. All these things are good. But we just pray especially, Lord, for all of us individually as um, souls that will live for eternity somewhere. Uh, we want to know and love you, and we want to have assurance that you have already provided everything that we would be eternally right with you and we would spend eternity with you. Uh, we want to know that truth, and we want to pursue you for who you really are. So thank you for this text, and thank you for this time. We pray this in your name. Amen. We are going to be, as Josh uh, has already read, in Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20. Um, this is a very significant chunk of Colossians as we've been going through, but just before we get there, um, I want to quickly tell you about something I listened to this week. Um, every once in a while, I listen to interviews from various people um, just to see how they think through their own professions. And this week, I was listening to uh, an actor, which is not surprising for a bunch of you guys because you know I like movies, and they show up at a mountain in the uh, sermons. Um, but I was listening to an actor who's now very famous talking about the very first movie he was ever in. He actually wrote that movie with a friend of his, um, and he gave it to a studio who bought it, um, and they financed him. They gave him uh, money to make the movie. Um, but the problem was it wasn't nearly enough money that they needed. It was somewhere around fifty dollars to $100,000. And I know that sounds like a lot of money, um, but it's actually not a lot of money if you know how expensive it is to make a movie. Uh, and so what these guys who wrote this screenplay for this movie needed was they needed to convince the studio to give them more money. So there was many different ways they could do that, but there's really only one way that they knew that they could make that happen. And the way they make that happen is they get one famous actor. 
If they get one famous actor to play a role that they had written in that movie, then the studio would be convinced that people would come to see the movie and they would give them enough money uh, to then be able to make the movie. So they specifically made a character who could basically be played by anyone famous, and they went and tried to convince people to do it. Um, they went around all over Hollywood and all over um, through all the connections that they had, and they really didn't come up with anything uh, until finally they met the right guy. There was a guy who uh, was really famous uh, in one genre of movies, and he had never really done a serious movie, and he decided that he was going to uh, try the role that they had written for them. And that was good enough in terms of finding exactly what they needed um, to be in the movie. It actually did convince the studio to give them the money that they needed. But it actually ended up being even more significant than that. Um, through that one actor, he actually basically set up the careers of these two young men. As a result of meeting them, they didn't just get their movie made, but every movie they came from after that movie. Um, that gentleman sat them down with famous directors and famous actors and famous producers who were developing things. Uh, and basically, both of those young men went on to have now incredibly successful careers. Um, and it didn't end up coming from um, ad handling all sorts of different things in this film. It didn't happen from uh, more lights, even necessarily from more money. Everything that they needed really just came down to one single guy. It's kind of amazing how similarly that actually works when you think about the book of Colossians. Before you actually think about Colossians, I hope that there's something about that that makes sense with us in terms of one thing meaning everything. That's actually a concept that's not um, very relevant to us in terms of how we look at our world. Uh, we don't really usually think there's one thing that could either fix everything in our world or complete everything in our world. Um, even just today, um, I saw two different YouTube ads uh, one for a mobile game where I can pretend to be a pirate, and one trying to convince me to make a small business. And both of them claimed that they could complete everything I needed in my life. They literally used the words, we can complete your life if you either start a small business or pretend to be a pirate on your phone. It's usually all of the world that the most successful way to market something to you is telling you it'll complete your life. And that actually works perfectly with where we're already at because we usually don't think one thing can fix everything. We don't actually even talk about having a priority in our life anymore, one thing that's important. We actually talk about priorities, plural. We think about the fact that there's not one thing that could fix us, but many things. And so many different things are important and they're all kind of equally important. Your family is a priority and your work is a priority. And being financially stable and getting a good career and doing well in school. All of these things are called priorities and they're all kind of equally important. But that's actually oxymoronic. It's actually a word that doesn't make any sense. The fact that something is a priority is it means that it's the most important thing, but we make many things the most important thing. This was the exact same thing with the Colossians. Paul had come knowing what was valuable for the Colossians more than anything in this world, which is that you need one thing. You need Jesus Christ. But the reality was that the Colossians did accept Jesus Christ. They did believe 
all of the truths of Christianity, but there was a huge piece that was missing, which was that Christ was important, but Christ wasn't everything. The reality was that everywhere they looked, there were many other people telling them there was many other things that they needed to complete their faith. They needed powerful angelic beings who needed to be pleased. They needed more activities that they needed to do to make God or other gods happy. They needed the advice of respected religious people of the culture who could help them make sense of the directions they were going. There were many other things that would satisfy. And the simple reality that Paul was introducing the Colossians to was that the only thing you need is Jesus Christ. And the way he wanted to make that abundantly clear to them was to show them a true and grand vision of who Jesus truly was. And so as we go into this section, Paul is going to explain to us that if you could sum up Jesus Christ, according to Paul, it would be this. Jesus Christ is supreme over everything and more than enough. Jesus Christ is supreme over everything, and he is more than enough. Notice Paul is going to talk about Christ not just being enough, but Christ being more than enough. And we're going to see how he ends up breaking that down in two sections, and that's going to be pretty simple. The first three verses are the first section, and the second three verses are the second section. So we're going to start with verses 15, 16, and 17, which Paul is explaining this, that Christ is supreme over all creation. Christ is supreme over all of creation. Paul begins that idea by describing Jesus Christ as the image of the invisible God. Christ is the image of the invisible God. The idea of God being invisible is something that would be surprising to us but not very surprising in an Old Testament understanding of the Bible. The Bible has made it clear that no one has ever seen God. We are actually incapable of ever seeing God because God doesn't actually have a form that can be seen. You can see that if you read through John chapter 1, 14, 1 Timothy 6, 16, 1 John 4, 12. But one of the most explicitly clear verses on this is in John chapter 4.24, where Jesus himself says God is spirit. God does not have a form that could be seen. And the obvious question is, how can we know God exists, and how can we know what he's like if we've never seen him? Well, the mystery that is revealed in the New Testament, and specifically in the Gospels, is that you can see God because you can see Jesus Christ. And when you see Jesus Christ, you see God. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the Apostle John explains that Jesus Christ has made God known. And the same idea comes up in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where Paul there describes Christ as the image of God. And image is the same word that's used here in verse 15. The word image was used to describe a statue, now, back then, if you had any important person or any leader, most specifically the emperor, for example, you didn't have something like Google to be able to search on images to see what they looked like. And most often, you've never seen what they looked like because of the fact that they didn't show up in town very much. They were removed from the people, and the only time you may have seen them would have been something like a parade or coming back from a successful war campaign. 
The way you knew what the emperor looked like was a statue of the emperor. Carved into stone, there was a picture of the person who was the leader over you. And that is the same word used to describe Jesus Christ here. Jesus Christ is like a statue of God. He will show you a likeness, a copy, and basically give you an understanding of who God himself is. But Jesus imaging God is different from a statue imaging an emperor in this sense. If an emperor desired to, he could go to the sculptor who was sculpting his statue and say, I want to have my muscles bigger, I want my face prettier, I feel like my nose is too big, I want that smaller, I want my pinky toe bigger than my big toe. Whatever he wanted to do, he could get them to change it. And scholars think for most of these people, whether they were insecure or whether they wanted a grander vision of themselves, they did change the statue. But Jesus Christ is not embellishing God. Jesus Christ is not showing more of God. The way Hebrews 1.3 explains Jesus is that he is the radiance of the glory of God, and get this, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of the image of God. Think of a stamp and the shape that is upon a stamp. And if you put it in ink and put it on a piece of paper, there will be no difference between what is on the stamp and the ink that is left on a piece of paper. That is Jesus in his divinity. Jesus Christ is exactly God. And if Jesus is exactly God fully, then he is entitled to receive the highest place of honor in all of creation. So Paul continues in verse 15 by calling him the firstborn of all creation. The idea of firstborn seems obvious in the sense that it's the first person born. In the Old Testament, it was the person who received the benefits of the family and they received the highest place of honor. But if you think of that term literally, we do have a problem right away. If Jesus is the first person born, that seems like it implies that Jesus was created, that there was a time when Jesus was not and there was a time when Jesus was. There are many cults, and many cults that call themselves Christians who have claimed that Jesus did not always exist. And if Jesus did not always exist, then Jesus is not God. Now, the easy way to say that that is an untrue statement that Jesus ever began is actually just to read the rest of this passage. But the word firstborn itself also does not mean that. The word firstborn has always meant not necessarily a created being, but the emphasis being upon that person deserving the first place. When Moses was told by God to go to Pharaoh and ask that the Hebrew people would be set free from slavery, he was told by God to say to them that Israel is my firstborn son. Now that statement doesn't mean Israel was the first people of God. There are many people like Abraham and Isaac and even Jacob before he was renamed Israel and the whole nation was called Israel after Jacob. What this is referring to is that Israel has the highest place in the heart of God. Israel was the people on earth that God had demonstrated his love to and they received the highest place. There's an even better example in Psalm chapter 89 verse 27. And Psalm 89, 27, speaking of the Messiah who will come to save sinners from their sin, is described by God. 
God says of the Messiah, I will make him my firstborn and the highest of the kings on earth. So firstborn here too is not talking about the Messiah coming into being, but being revealed as the person who has the highest place in the heart of God and therefore a king. It's not saying this passage that Jesus is the first person to be born into creation, but Jesus has the highest place in all of creation. And there's a reason for that. Part of that reason is in verse 16 as he continues that Jesus Christ is actually the person who created creation. Verse 16 says, by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Paul starts using opposites, heaven and earth, visible and invisible. And the point is that Jesus Christ is involved intimately in every piece of creation. Not only does Paul describe every visible and invisible piece of the universe, things that we know and things that we don't know, but he uses huge language to describe this. He uses all. He uses everything. That's going to be something important in this entire text. Jesus Christ is involved in creating all of it. One of my favorite preachers, H.B. Charles, once said, if you could take every single piece of creation and pull it upside down, it would be labeled Jesus Christ. That's how much Jesus is involved in creation. But notice some of the other things he brings out when he mentions and describes everything in creation. He specifically says thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Now, it might seem like he's talking about leadership, like the emperor who was carved in a statue, for example. But this actually isn't specifically talking about leaders like that. It's actually talking about the idea that there were spiritual forces that had power in this world. There were things like demons and demigods and most specifically angels. And all of them had a kind of independent power like the Greek gods in Roman religion. And every single one of them, because it was so worrying about the control and safety of your life, every single one of them needed to be appeased. This person needed that sacrifice, this person needed that sacrifice, and Jesus was simply one more person to be a sacrifice towards. But Paul is adamantly denying this. What he talks about is that any single power in this world, spiritual or otherwise, every single one of them serves at the pleasure and the privilege of Jesus Christ's authority. There is nothing in this world that claims any power away from Jesus Christ because, as verse 16 continues, Jesus Christ created everything through him and for him. Jesus Christ created everything for him. It's not just about what's in this world, it's about who commands the world and who this world exists for. One pastor described this by saying, Jesus Christ is the goal of creation. Everything was originally created for him, and everything will end in worshiping him. And even in this in-between time, there is absolutely nothing will change because it has all been designed for Jesus Christ's glory. I was laughing with one of the pastors this week because every time I heard a sermon on this passage, I heard a pastor quote from the same guy. And I made a joke saying I would never quote from that guy because I'll feel like I'm just one more guy to quote from him. But you know what? I'm going to give you that quote. And the reason is because it's an awesome quote. 
There's a famous preacher back in the day named Abraham Kuyper. And Abraham Kuyper once said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, that is mine. Such an awesome quote. Paul ends up continuing to establish how important this should be in the minds of the Colossians. He says in verse 17, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That first part is directly contesting the idea of Christ being created, the idea of Christ being a firstborn in terms of his creation. John chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in a gospel explaining the divine nature of Christ says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The amount of theology in that verse is extraordinary, but the gist of it is this. God, in his full Trinitarian form, has always existed. And each one of those members of the Trinity was with each other, perfectly comfortable without creation. But to demonstrate their glory in the world, they created. And Jesus Christ was there. Jesus Christ was with God as a person in the Trinity, but he himself was fully God. He shared the full nature of God and was there before existence existed. But it gets even deeper in that because he's not only before all things, but he's holding all things together. Just because Jesus was the original original does not mean that he thought he was too good for his creation. Jesus did not create and then bail. He didn't make things and then hope something else sustains everything. Everything is held perfectly in place because Christ did not remove himself from creation. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 again says that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you go up into the farthest reaches of space, anyone could tell you that the thing that's holding all things together is gravity. And they're right. I bet 99% of you could tell me more scientific facts about gravity than I know already. The thing that's interesting about gravity, though, is it doesn't explain everything. It might explain why things are in the place they are, but it does not explain how things are in exactly the right place. For example, why things are exactly in the right place so Earth itself does not end. Earth hasn't ended for 6,000 years, and the reason is because everything is where it needs to be. Space junk doesn't hit us. Stars are forming, and they don't make us implode. And we seem to be the only place in the planet that has that perfect form. Some of you guys may have heard of something called a Goldilocks planet. Raise your hand if you've heard of a Goldilocks planet before. Just a couple of you guys. For those of you who don't know, a Goldilocks planet is something scientists have looked for for a long time. It's a planet that's not too hot and not too cold. It's a planet that could perfectly sustain human life if anything happened to the Earth. As far as I know, they've only found two, and one of them has a kind of atmosphere that would kill us, and the other one is way too far away to get to and has other complications. There's only one planet in the world that seems to be perfect for human living, and that's the one we're already on. We're far away enough from the sun that we don't explode into flames in a second, and we're close enough, exactly close enough from the sun that we can absorb the life we need from it to make things grow and to receive the warmth that we need. And that's not accidental. 
Again, H.B. Charles once asked a very good question, which is, have you ever wondered why the world is a cosmos and not a chaos? Even if you left the, micro, the uh, telescope for a second and you took a microscope to observe atoms and molecules, it's not just the fact that they exist and are perfectly made up of what we need to make us what we are, but they stay the way they are perfectly so that we continue to be the way we are. Again, scientists have actually observed that there's a space between molecules. And even though many people have theories as to why they still stay in the place they are, it's amazing that so many of them, millions, billions, trillions, and gazillions of them, are exactly where they need to be to make a protein, to make a molecule, to make an atom, to make you. Exactly the way you are. And to continue in the way you are. Why is it, according to Colossians, that space is the way it is, so the earth may continue, that everything on earth may continue to grow and unfold with a life that has purpose, and that you continue to be formed in the way you are. And it's not accidental. You're formed perfectly for a purpose, because the person who created you has a purpose, which is to reconcile you to himself. The purpose of all creation is to worship Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ created you, created everything, and is holding all things together for the purpose of his glory. The amazing thing about this is we are, in the New Testament, literally one of the greatest sections of the entire New Testament, being shown the awesome significance and supremacy of Jesus Christ as God. And I want to clarify something here because it's very, very important. This text is making a huge difference between the significance of Christ and what Christ gives us. Let me say this again. This is making a difference between the significance of Christ and the significance of what Christ gives us. This is what I mean. So many Christians in this world love the things that Christ gives them, but they don't love Christ. So many of us, I think, are eager to talk about how good the gospel is because we receive heaven. But so often we forget about the significance of the person by which heaven is as good as it is. And when that gets forgotten, when the beauty of Christ is exempt from heaven, when we love the idea of the blessings and safety that Christ gives us, but we don't love Christ himself, Jesus Christ really only becomes a get-out-of-jail-free card. He seems better than hell, or he seems better than having no purpose. But Jesus isn't just enough for those things. Jesus is the worthiness of literally all things in this world. He's demonstrating his significance to draw you away from other things that seem so important to show you that all purpose can be found in the person who holds the entire world exactly where it needs to be even though it doesn't seem like it's where it needs to be. You don't need to be depressed or emo to think that there's something wrong with this world. There's something going on in this world where things aren't as they should be. I've been thinking more about death recently, and it's amazing to think that the person who is the most chill in this life can suddenly become a philosopher when death enters the picture. All of a sudden, the person who cared the least about this world can think 
that all of the sudden something significant is happening. Something that shouldn't happen is happening right now. You can use all the power that you have and all the resources you have to investigate this world, and by human standards, it's going to be nearly impossible to determine the purpose of everything, let alone the reason why you're here. King Solomon was probably the most resourceful person to ever live. When he was king, he had wisdom, he had gardens, he experimented with pleasure, he gathered wine, slaves and singers, and he worked hard to build great things. And all of it was in the pursuit of purpose. Yet we have an entire book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, in which King Solomon repeats, repeats over and over again, all is vanity and striving after wind. Humans left on their own trying to find purpose without Jesus Christ is like trying to catch the wind. It is the most impossible thing you could ever do. But the beauty of this passage is not scolding us into submission to Christ, but it's demonstrating the perfection and the glory of Christ to draw our hearts in. And the way that Paul transfers from thinking about the glory of Christ over creation is that he transfers into Christ's glory involved with creation. That's the next three verses in verses 18, 19, and 20, in which Jesus Christ is supremely involved with creation. Jesus Christ is supremely involved with creation. And he does this in one of my, my, one of my most favorite passages. Most favorite, is that a word? One of my favorite passages in the Bible because of how dramatic it is. In verse 18, he says, he is the head of the body, the church. Christ is in charge of the whole universe. He's in charge of everything that exists. And all of a sudden, he's here in the church. The church not as a building. The church not as a movement or an organization. But the church as people who somehow, some way, desire Christ as their head. The church is described as the body multiple times in the New Testament as a way of explaining how closely Christ is involved with people. Not a building, but people. He's so closely identified with them that he is literally with them and in them. They are a body, and he is their head. Now, what does that mean? What is a head? Let me explain what a head is. The Greek word for head means head. Very dramatic. The word head means head. This is what I mean. You have a head, and you need a head. Scientists have discovered 100% of people who do not have a head do not function properly. You need a head. And your head does two things for you. Your head is the source of your life in the sense that if you lose it, you have nothing. And your head is also the thing that holds your brain, which directs your whole life. So the head is the direction of your life. It demonstrates the authority and the most important part of your life. And it's also the source of your life. And Jesus Christ, who's supreme over all things, is also supreme over his church in this sense. Jesus Christ gives Christians the source of their life, but he's also the authority over their life. Not that he tells them what to do, but that he helps control and direct every move they make for a good purpose. And somehow, this seems to be suggesting that even though this world is so broken and it doesn't feel like Christ is in charge, somehow he has drawn people to himself that would never go to him. And he is intimately involved with them. The clear sign is that we are getting hints that Christ is fixing the things that are broken. 
Christ is fixing the things that are broken. And he continues in verse 18. Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. One of the most unappreciated and underspoken about parts of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you have an opportunity to share the gospel with your friends, do not miss the resurrection of Christ. It is desperately important. Jesus Christ literally described himself as the resurrection and the life in John eleven twenty five, And he said that to explain that whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall yet live. And Paul, in another passage in 1 Corinthians 15, a passage that is all about the resurrection, in verse 17 says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless and you're still in your sins. So the two things we know about the resurrection, as Paul says in verse 18, Jesus coming out from the dead, is that it grants life to all who believe and your sins are no more. The resurrection is incredibly significant. And again, because we know the word firstborn, we have a little bit more context already. It's not talking about him being the first chronologically to come out of the dead. Many people in the Bible were raised by the power of God, but only one person was raised to promise resurrection for every person who would come after him. Every single person in this world will be resurrected, but not every person in this world will be resurrected to heaven. And there's only one person and one resurrection who promises a resurrection into Christ and into heaven forever. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he did that for the same reason he's explaining this text to us now. Jesus rose from the dead so that he would be the firstborn. Or as Paul explains it in verse 18, he rose from the dead to demonstrate that in everything he might be preeminent. The worst part of this world is death. If you've never experienced anyone die, it is very, very hard to prepare for it. It is very, very hard to prepare for it. Even someone that you know is a believer, even if you are a strong believer, death is incredibly hard. But the resurrection of Christ is explaining that death isn't so hard as to destroy your entire life. Actually, it's simply the last obstacle in the way of not just being in Christ or being filled with Christ, but permanently residing with Christ. And that is the most dramatic thing that Paul ends up going into in verse 19. When he says in verse 19, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Actually, in originally studying this passage, I didn't realize how dramatically important that verse was starting with the fact that Christ was pleased to dwell. To dwell means to pitch a tent. It means to live somewhere. It means to reside, to be in relation with something. You have a house, and you dwell in it. Not 100% of the time, that's how you're here. But you dwell in a house. And I think you, or I hope you like your house. I was reminiscing the other day about the first three weeks that I was hired here to be your guys' youth pastor, and I stayed in an extended stay motel for three and a half weeks during COVID. And I remember every single inch of that dwelling place. I remember reading there. I remember actually watching my brother's wedding reception from that room. And the only times I really got out was just to walk to study, 
uh, or to meet different people from the church. And I loved being there. As much better as it was to meet Will Lau and to have him help us find an apartment that we live in now, and as much as I love it because it's got Ashley's design written all over it, because mine is terrible and hers is so much better, um, I loved being in that spot. And it was interesting to kind of reminisce of how uncomfortable so many other people seem to be in where they live. Even the most important and richest people in the world are very uncomfortable with different things, especially their dwelling place where they live. Me and Ashley were watching YouTube videos of famous YouTubers doing house tours. And it was amazing to see how an 18-year-old kid who has something like a million or three million or $10 million home can be so unsatisfied with certain parts of it. I'm not mad at them, they got money and that's great, good for them. You can see them a little better. But the reality is that when people are important, they feel entitled to a good place to live. You would think God might be that way. If God is the perfect preeminent being, if he's the one who deserves first place, you would ask, where is it that God would dwell? He should deserve the most pristine, beautiful, and elaborate mansion in the entire world. And what this text is telling us is that he actually chose the most unlikely spot to dwell in. That was in the created human flesh that he ultimately created. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in human flesh. Guys, you need to know and be totally amazed by that fact. God is so much infinitely better than insignificant humanity, and he took on human flesh. The question that really comes out of that is why would Christ do that? Why would Christ condescend in such a way that he would be intimately involved in people who every single day reject him? Not a single person in this entire world abstains from sin from 24 hours. We are sinners. Our body is corrupted by sin. Why would Christ come into that? And the Bible explains many reasons why, but Paul doesn't get into all of them here. Rather, what he explains is that it was necessary to bring about two things. The fullness of God dwelt in human flesh for two reasons at least. Verse 20, he did it to reconcile all things, whether in heaven or on earth, to himself. And the second thing is, by it and by the blood of that flesh on the cross, he would make peace. Reconciliation and peace. Reconciling means changing one thing to something completely different. The reality is Christ looking at this world with the Trinity could have determined this world is not what we wanted it to be. Let's destroy it permanently and send all of it to eternal judgment and I will receive my glory in that way. But instead he determined to reconcile it. Not just you, not just me, but all of this creation. Everything around you. That everything sinful would be swept away and everything broken would be completely remade. That's the promise of Revelation 21.5 when Christ says, Now that I am seated on the throne, I am making all things new. I am changing them from unworthiness to worthiness. And the second thing he is doing is making peace. We know there's not peace in this world, but I think if you look at history, you also know that 
Most of the people who promise peace almost never bring peace. Many, many gifted leaders in history have promised peace if their people let them rise to power. But once they have power, the continuance of their authority rests on the lives of the people they're over. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's because absolute power of corrupt people will obviously corrupt what is already corrupted. Humans are bad with power, and every human who has ever reached power has never brought true and lasting peace. They don't have the power, they don't have the moral fortitude. They are broken, and this world is broken, it is past them. There's only one leader in all of the world who could not only promise peace, but instead of that peace coming at the cost of the lives of the people he's ruling, it came at the cost of his own life. That he came in human flesh and he died in that human flesh. And he rose again to demonstrate the one thing separating you from God would be completely wiped away in God dying for you. We could draw a million applications from that. I think Paul in the rest of Colossians does draw a million applications from that. But there's only one application I think that would be helpful. One thing to rest in this, which is to ask you the question, who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is a man, but he's more than a man. He is completely human in human flesh and still is now, but he's more than that. I listened to an actor this week who actually played Jesus Christ in an incredibly controversial movie from years ago. And the interviewer asked him what it was like to play Jesus, and this is what he said. The way I entered into that was quite simple and quite surprising. It was very clear that the emphasis was to find the human aspect of Jesus. The first thing I needed to do was forget I was playing Jesus and to cleanse myself of certain kinds of expectations. I had to find out how this historical character was a human being. Now the truth is, that is an incredibly offensive statement. But it's also an incredibly tragic statement that Jesus would only be a human to so many people in this world. That was the same of the people in Matthew chapter 13. When Jesus Christ in Matthew 13 is explaining parables, explaining eternal truths in well-woven illustrations, the people completely miss the mark and they see him as just a man, an extraordinary man, a prophet maybe, a miracle worker, but just a man. And this is what they say. Where did this man get this wisdom and mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Jesus was the carpenter's son. He was the son, the human son, of a man named Joseph. But he was more than that. He was the person who was the carpenter of the cosmos. He was the creator of the whole world who was walking amongst them and showing in his perfection every single moment that he wasn't just there to hang out with them. He was there to dwell with them eternally and to invite them into a room that he had prepared with them for heaven that is not good by itself, but is good because Christ is there. The best thing you could do from this passage is to look at it and ask yourself the question, do I recognize who the true Christ is? 
Do you see the Messiah hinting at his coming in the Old Testament? Do you see him walking amongst people in Jerusalem in the Gospels? Do you see the salvation that he brought, the peace that he brought, the reconciliation that he bought at the cost of his own blood in the epistles? Is Jesus the goal of your life? Jesus Christ is demonstrating his supremacy so that you would look at Jesus and see so much more. That he is the God worthy of eternal praise and because of that, that you would not look for other things to satisfy your salvation or satisfy the pleasures and goals of your life. If the goal of creation is the goal of your life, if Jesus Christ is the goal of your life, then you have assurance that you will walk into true satisfaction forever because you will be with him. He is supreme and he is more than enough. Let's pray. Father, this is a tremendous passage in scripture. This is so much more than us as humans can contemplate. It is impossible to imagine just how amazing it is to see who you are. We pray that you would help us recognize your true worth. We pray that you would help us to understand just how deep are the riches of this mystery revealed as Christ. We need to see your glory. We want to submit to you and bow down to your throne because we know that you have loved us first and you have eternally gave yourself to us through dying on the cross once and for all, for all sin and providing for us all the righteousness we need to be holy in your sight. And you provide for us every single day. You care for us and you control our lives. And we pray you would draw us into you, that we would be filled in you, and that you would continue to lead us towards you. If we do that, if you do that through us, then we know that we have more than enough to live this life. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that we would have this upon our hearts deeply, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you guys for being attentive. Thank you for um, just going through. Yeah, clap for you guys. For your, for your attention, good job. Uh, I have um, three really quick small group questions for you guys. Um, they're very, very short. Um, if you put your uh, notebook away, that's totally fine. I'm sure there's someone in your group who will end up writing these down. But I just have three quick questions. I just wanna note that we did kind of hint at a ton of theological um, things here. We hinted at the incarnation. We hinted at Christ being fully man and fully God. There's probably tons of uh, questions that could come out of this, and Paul doesn't ask them all. If you have any questions, uh, come talk to me. Uh, If you don't have time tonight, let me know, and I will get you a dessert or coffee or something, and we'll talk about it. Um, Or talk to your leaders, Um, and leaders, don't feel the pressure um, to answer every question, because this is super deep. This is kind of the core of Christianity. So um, I certainly know that someone could ask me a question tonight, and I won't know the answer to Uh, But at least for me, I'm going to make sure that I uh, study this stuff if you have a question so I can come back to you with an answer. But these are the questions that I think might be answerable from this text that we just went through. This is kind of the main stuff. Number one, what does it mean to say this text is not about us? What does it mean to say this text is not about us? That's the first question. Question number two, 
Why must Christ be more than a man? Why must Christ be more than a man? That's the second question. And here's the third question. What did Christ come to reconcile? What did Christ come to reconcile? I think that'll give you some good questions, especially reconciliation, because uh, Josh is going to be preaching to us next week, and we're going to be dealing with reconciliation. Um, So if you kind of work with that and have some questions, I'm sure lots of them will be answered next week, too. So uh, high school uh, girls, you guys are up in the building thing. Uh, Junior high girls, you can feel free to take my office. High school boys are in the nursery with me, and then uh, junior high boys are in the perch. Break. <laughs>